Hello, everyone. Welcome to the sixth episode of Into the Aura. I'm Tianxin. I'm Frank. And I'm Chris. In the past few episodes, we already briefed about this world of neo vanguard and certainly how Aura takes place in this revolting, revolutionary art world. But let's hold on a second. Seriously speaking, guys. So when we think about Aura, what is the first image that appears in our mind? Well, probably like a whole bunch of people crowded like in, in, in front of Mona Lisa or famous paintings like that. Yeah, like Mona Lisa and Michelangelo. I think probably no matter how aesthetic or ideology changes, the presentation of the artworks, even in this neo vanguard era, doesn't change that much. Yeah, exactly. From Mona Lisa to the Jackson Pollock action painting, although these famous artworks change, and the aura, but the aura they produce are always held securely in a well-organized museum space. But that's not the case with the public arts. And in this episode, we are going to explore the definition of public art, the ethos behind this genre, and the aura related to this kind of art form. Well, what exactly is public art? I mean, just like other non-traditional art form, it is kind of hard to define. Well, I think the essence behind this specific art genre is to create art for the public to interact with, allowing people to access them freely. These art pieces are displayed in public space so that people can visually or phys physically access them. Yeah, I think the public art can take from any media as long as it has interaction with people. That's the most fundamental part. Even though a hard definition can't be provided through its appearance media, I'll say the most common forms of public arts are sculptures, digital media, and performance art. So in general, the public arts often embodies political or universal ideologies rather than those commercial, partisan, and personal concepts and interests. Um, for public art, I think participation is definitely key. But, uh, I mean, while they are created by artists, they are completed by its audience with a variety of public processes such as um, public interpretation, maintenance, procurement, and feedback. Yeah, so even till now, when we talk about the public art, first thing people came into the mind are probably still the public monumental sculptures. This have a long history. And the modern public art is often largely influenced by the national programs that's aimed for the public propaganda goals during the, uh, during the Cold War era. Today, we are going to discuss neither of those. We're really going to talk about the art world that really focus on the public face. While public art changed during the 1970s, following the civil rights movement claims on public space, the urban regeneration programs and revised ideas of sculptures, public art somehow acquired a status beyond mere decoration and visualization of national histories in public space. Since then, public art has become much more about the interaction with the public. This perspective was reinforced in the 1970s by our urban cultural policies. For example, the New York-based Public Art Fund and urban or regional percent for art programs in the United States and Europe. What is really the turning point of public art is that it shifted from a national to a local level which transformed its, its nature of being a propaganda tool to artworks that really focuses on expressing an artist's con concept to the public. 
One thing that I found interesting is how public art closely depends on its exhibition space. In fact, I think that the exhibition space is part of the work itself, and the aura is produced by the space and the piece as a whole. And why do you think like that? I think that public arts are using the space and the atmosphere surrounding them to de deliver their essence. Without the specification in space, public art pieces wouldn't be complete. If you look at Anish Kapoor's Cloudgate as an example, the piece itself is designed based on the location. It was Kapoor's submission to a competition of designing a sculpture for Chicago's Millennium Park. Yeah, he has definitely produced some of the most iconic contemporary public art pieces. Yeah, and for those who haven't seen the sculpture before, it has an organic bean-like form that is about 10 meters tall with a base about um, 13 by 20 meters. The entire sculpture is made out of 168 stainless steel plates welded together, reflecting the magnificent skyline of Chicago. Yeah, like, like besides how large the piece is, I also want to point out the craftsmanship of that piece is crazy. Yeah, the entire sculpture is seamless. And this is because Kapoor tends to erase what he calls the trace of hands, which is the mark of fabrication. On, on, on the underside of the cloud gate, there is the omphilos, meaning navel in Greek. It is a chamber for people to access through and interact with the highly reflective sculpture surface. The concave form of the omphilos warps and multiplies reflections in a very dramatic way. You know, one, one fact that I've heard about this is that the intent of the design is to dematerialize the large object which is making this piece itself seems weightless and naturally belongs to this space. Yes, Kapoor is playing with the visual illusion of scale and space, which reminds me of what Sol Luit mentioned in his paragraph on conceptual art, how size of an object can change people's perception. And just like what you said, dematerializing what was originally magnificent and rigid, providing the material and organic texture what is even more interesting about this piece is that the, the seems, seamless surface of the sculpture doesn't only dematerialize and camouflage itself into where it belongs, but also dematerializes what's surrounding it. As viewers approach this piece and look into the reflection, the concrete and stiff architectures, and even the viewers themselves, transforms into this fluid-like form. And of course, this deform deformation wouldn't exist without the architecture and the environment surrounding the sculpture. I think Kapoor is definitely experimenting and largely relying on the environment around uh, his pieces. It seems like the piece is designed for, for this space only. Yes, definitely. As I've mentioned earlier, it is his attempt of a competition of designing a sculpture for the Millennium Park. For some reason, his piece reminds me of a performance piece called The Artist is Present by Mariana Abramovic. It was performed um, in the MoMA in two, back in 2010. Do you guys know this piece? 
Yeah, of course, with Abramovic sitting on one side of the table, audiences can line, can line up to sit on the other side and make eye contact with her. And I just want to point out, it is very interesting that how in, during the entire process, there is no physical context, nor conversation happens between. The piece is simply Abramovic and the audience staring at each other. And the audience can take as much time as they wish. Yeah, very powerful. According to MoMA, the work was inspired by her belief that stretching the length of a performance beyond expect expectations serves to alter our perception of time and foster a deeper engagement in the experience. From my own interpretation of this piece, the fact that this performance was exhibited in one of the most famous museums in the world adds a special context and emotion to this piece. For lack of better words, it formalizes the performance. Since one of the main purpose of museum is documentation, the exhibition space somehow renders the, this performance piece a sense of permanence, which further reinforces Abramovic's point of stretching the length of time. Also, the fact that it is held in MoMA definitely adds more depth to its attempt on stretching the length of time. However, I think the aura of public art does not only come from the performance itself, nor the exhibition space itself. Um, it, it is, in my view, also intertwined with the interaction and the participation from the audience. What do you mean by that? Well, in some cases, the audience of an artwork is selected. By that, I mean people were chosen or they are aware of the participation in some sort of art movement. In other cases, people might not be aware that the existence of this so-called art is involved. Like, they are not consciously aware of the performance of an artwork during, artwork during participation due to the avant-garde approach, such as the happenings. But do such differences affect the aura of a piece? If participants are completely unaware of the artness in a piece, does, still, does aura still exist? Well, to dive in deeper, I would like to uh, discuss two interactive art pieces, the Obliteration Room by Yayoi Kusama and the action of the Experimental Art Cycle by Gassiela Carnival. Despite their differences, the bo both artwork provoke the general theme of emancipation through participants' actions. First of all, in the Obliteration Room, Kusama creates a blank canvas of white space where visitors are encouraged to put polka dot stickers on any surface in the room. Um, by inviting people to break the look but no touch rule in the museum, her piece provokes the aura of emancipation, well, in the other words, the act and the feeling of achieving freedom. Yeah, also definitely the, there is a general theme of emancipation to the audience in those public arts works. And the objective and procedure of the observation room is quite clear for the audience since it took place in an art museum so that people expect to explore and experience about the aura and the art. So the observation room creates some sort of comfort zone for the people to witness the broad definition of art. Whereas uh, Graciela Carnival, on the other hand, uh, she took a more radical approach to achieve emancipation. Uh, back in 1968, 
she invited individuals to an empty gallery in Rosario, Argentina. After all the people had entered the gallery, she locked the door and left them inside for an hour until a bystander broke the window, setting them free. Uh, her act is to mimic the abusive act done by the Argentina military government. I think by using the confinement of space, she let the partic participants experience imprisonment emotionally and physically. And of course, such confinement provokes the, the eager for freedom, which they finally achieved at the end. Add on to that, I think we have to really notice that although this confinement took place also in a gallery, just like the operation room, but the participant this time were not expecting such an aggressive forms of experiment. So the element of ambush has been deployed for the immersive interaction. Definitely. I mean, the individuals were forced to react, uh, which I would call a mandatory participation. However, due to the unexpected factors, it is difficult to define its aura's existence. People might not be aware of their aura itself while being trapped. They might not associate this unpleasant experience with any of the R forms. Just like the happenings, the aura of the experimental R cycle heavily relies on the participation and the temporality. Well, to me, I think the aura is created by those participants and it's extremely personal for those participants. Whereas in the operation room, the aura is sort of created by the rooms, the stickers and all the things together. So the physicality of the room has made the aura more clear on the surface and it's easier for us to understand. Well, but after all, um, I think we all agree with the fact that aura does ex exist without an exhibition space, despite it might be slightly less strong. Or maybe it creates its own exhibition space. Yes, exactly. Sometimes the exhibition space really doesn't have to be a museum, but it's more like a concept that is based on the spectator's cognitive. But just hold on a second. Isn't that sound a bit controversial? I mean, think about it. For example, like Banksy, probably the most renowned contemporary public artist. We all know that he makes tons of graffiti works all around the world and there's literally no clue for people to predict where he's going to do his next piece nor about his personal identity so he intentionally keeps away the institutional power dynamic and really enables his work to always convey the critical ideas directly to the public and he did it i mean there's a whole group of people supporting him and there are other artists who join his group of revolts well, that brings up the question. You see, Banksy's artwork is one example of the public artwork that naturally creates an extension of the museum space. So despite there is no memorial hall, no memorial square or infrastructures built around them, people still immediately recognize this work since Banksy and his style has become such an influential public norm. And in fact, the museums in Britain started to actually protect his work from the vandalism and the city government of Bristol decided to actually remain Banksy's famous work, Naked Man. Can you elaborate on that? It's sort of like Duchamp using the fountain to mock the museum, but it eventually was exhibited and secured by the museum. That is true. Um, it's 
somehow like the aura that Banksy's work create is creating this invisible space that ironically departs his work from the public. And there's even more extreme example, the insertion into the ideological circuit. Silo Marella's goal of this piece is quite apparent. That is through the distribution of the Coca-Cola bottle. He can bypass the neutralization of the museum and directly hack into the industry and public face. So these bottles with this text were cycled for multiple times and conveyed the message directly to the public. Well, absolutely, I want to point out that this project was really successful in terms of ideological propaganda. But what I want to say here is that when Marillus was trying to bypass the museum, what exactly he's trying to avoid? He claimed in his article that everything was neutralized after it went into the museum because they were all treated equally as art, but no longer as provocative ideologists. So technically speaking, in this case, the experience, the experience of seeing a piece of art or using our words, the aura, isn't really that desirable for him. But it still has the aura, right? I mean, the image for the printed Coke bottle is quite an iconic piece for many people who have learned about art history. Yeah, uh, those bottles are actually being collected and presented in the galleries and museums. Just like any other collection, it is now contributing to the museum atmosphere and makes the spectator feel the aura. Well, I guess that says something about the oppositional relationship between the revolution and aura. So probably the aura does not require a physical exhibition space to exist, but it is very likely to be based on people's pre-knowledge about the institutional power, the institutional art, the authorities of art. And therefore, it might be something that is detrimental for the works that want to fight against the current power dynamic. Using Marilla's word, the aura which makes art art could also be the things that neutralize it. So in that case, I think the edge between public art and non-art really becomes sort of blurry. That's true. I mean, the decentralized way of presenting really makes the aura of public art something that works completely different from the ones created in the museum. Well, after all, I think that we all agree that, unlike other art forms, the aura of public art is very objective. Different people perceive it differently based on their own experience and understanding, which is what makes this genre stand out from the rest. And with that conclusion, I think it's probably a good time to end the conversation for today. Thank you all for listening. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.